Hi, everyone. This is Jen with the Criminology Academy podcast. If you aren't already, make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Crim Academy. After listening, please let us know what you think by leaving us a review. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Criminology Academy podcast where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Tosleib. And I'm Jose Sanchez. And today we have Jessica Mongilio on the podcast to talk with us about head injuries and delinquency. Jessica Mongilio is a PhD candidate in the Department of Criminology at Pennsylvania State University. She received her bachelor's degree in neuroscience from The Ohio State University. Her research interests fall largely under the scope of adolescent decision-making, especially as it relates to delinquency and substance use. Her work has been published in outlets such as the Journal of Research on Crime and Delinquency and the Journal of Studies on Alcohol and Drugs. Thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. We are excited to talk with you today. Yeah, really happy to be on the show and talk with you guys today. Great. So today's episode, we're going to sort of have this broader discussion on head injuries and biosocial criminology. And then we're going to talk about a paper that was authored, a solo author by our guest, Jessica. And so with that being said, Jen, why don't you have the first crack? (laughs) All right. Thanks, Jose. So first off, Jessica, I just want to acknowledge the fact that you have an undergrad in neuroscience And I think we just need to all pause and reflect on that for a minute, because I know Jose and I would not have been able to do that. No offense, Jose, but we know where we stand. I I keep telling people I wasn't allowed to take chemistry in high school. (laughs) I was, (laughs) so no offense taken. (laughs) Yeah, it was a very fun major. I really enjoyed it. There was about a week where I thought I wanted to like go to med school and be a neurologist. And then I decided that was a horrible idea and I should definitely not do that. But yeah, it was a really fun time. And honestly, I promise it wasn't like as scary or like horrifyingly rigorous as it sounds. (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I started off as a chemistry major and didn't make it more than a year. So I would probably disagree (laughs) with you on that. But anyway, I just wanted to point that out because of what we're going to be talking about today and how it seems kind of fitting that you are now, at least as far as this paper goes, interested in work within the biosocial camp in criminology. And for our listeners, can you describe what exactly biosocial criminology is and perhaps what kind of work would fall under this umbrella? Yeah, so biosocial criminology is really just a consideration of like the biological risk factors for criminal behavior by themselves or in combination with like social risk factors, you know, it is biosocial, it's not just biological criminology. And because of that, like it is inherently interdisciplinary and it brings together theories and perspectives from traditional criminology and sociology and psychology and neuroscience and human development, and sometimes even economics, like it's all over the place. But because of that, you get some really interesting and really diverse topics. So while, you know, having a background in neuroscience and being interested in criminal behavior made uh, head injury a really kind of easy place for me to start, 
I think there is so much work in criminology that falls under the umbrella of biosocial that isn't necessarily considered biosocial criminology, right? So anything that looks at like relationships between substance use and crime, that's basically biosocial because substance use affects kind of what's happening on a neural and a psychological level. I have some work with Dr. Rebecca Bucci, who is on, I guess, an earlier episode of the podcast where she looks at pubertal timing. That's 100% biosocial research. And we actually have another paper we're working on about pubertal timing and mental health. And it's not an area that a lot of people consider themselves to be like actively engaged in, but mm -hmm. I think there's so much more biosocial criminology happening in the field than a lot of people are really aware. Yeah, I think that's probably true too. I hadn't even, I mean, thinking about Rebecca's work, I hadn't even considered that that would fall under this umbrella, but I suppose in a way it definitely would. Absolutely. Um, all right. So we have to bring up this question for all of the critics out there, but Lombroso was known for his work in the very, very early days of biosocial criminology. In short, he kind of put forward this theory using like looking at human bone remains basically and stated that crime was an inherited characteristic trait of human behavior using his term, the atavist biological throwback. But, you know, his work has been very criticized and for good reason. And now I think today a lot of people in biosocial are distancing themselves from his work. And so how does contemporary work differ from the early days of biosocial crim? Yeah. So Lombroso's theory and kind of many other people at the same time was really known for focusing on those like specific biological features that were thought to be related to crime. And it was largely due to like these evolutionarily like old characteristics, right? Like atavisms are actually relatively common throughout nature. They're basically just like vestigial traits that we've carried on and don't need. Like humans have tailbones. That's an atavism that we all have. So the majority of Lombroso's theory in my head is actually more tied to like evolutionary theories, I feel, than contemporary biosocial theories. And I think that's largely because like while contemporary biosocial theories like can and do look at genetics, there's so much more than that now. And there's a larger consideration given to like social and environmental risk factors, right? Like at this point in time, we know it's not like nature versus nurture. Mm -hmm. They definitely work together and it's not just one gene that makes you criminal. And so I think that contemporary biosocial does still have kind of this shadow, this ghost of Lombroso that's haunting it, but it's really kind of disappointing because there's so much work in biosocial criminology that is really inclusive of social risk factors and kind of places them as being really important. So another piece that I think is totally biosocial and no one else would probably think of this off the top of its head is Rob Sampson's work on lead exposure, because he has that macro level piece looking at like disadvantage mm -hmm. and the risk of lead exposure and poisoning prenatally, which is related to impulsivity and criminal behavior. And that's pretty contemporary biosocial work. 
but it's looking at how this relationship between disadvantage and kind of spatial patterns interacts with this biological process regarding like lead exposure and lead poisoning in children and how that relates to criminal behavior. So I really just think that contemporary biosocial is so much more complex and occasionally convoluted, but just really brings a lot more to the table than the very kind of simplistic and outdated Lombroso-esque theories that people still tend to think of. Bringing up these topics where I'm like, huh, that makes sense. But I don't know that I ever really thought of it that way. And most people uh, don't. Yeah, because when you hear like Rob Sampson, right? Like you think social disorganization, collective efficacy, like these real macro social structural studies. And you know, I've read his stuff on lead exposure and it not once did it ever cross my mind. Hey, this is biosocial. And to be fair, I'm not 100% sure it ever would have crossed Rob Sampson's mind either. <laughs> I don't know. I can't speak for him, but it's probably not something that the majority of people would think about when reading that paper. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, and this, you know, might seem obvious, but I think it's worth talking about. You've kind of, you know, touched on this a little bit, where when people hear biosocial, they may think, you know, biological characteristics, things that we're born with, you know, through your genetics, DNA, whatever. But from the very brief conversation we've had so far, it sounds like there's more to it than that, right? Like it's not just something that we might be born with. And even today's topic, you know, head injuries, we'll talk a little bit about neurological deficits. And, you know, you just mentioned lead exposure and substance abuse, but what are some other factors that we could fit under this biosocial umbrella? Yeah, there are a lot of different kind of risk factors that fit under biosocial. So really like substance use, there are so many things related to substance use and especially like addiction and how that changes how you think, how that changes your brain at literally like the neuron level that would fall really well into biosocial. To some extent, I almost think that literally anything that talks about like development, like adolescent development is biosocial because development's a biological process. It just also happens to have a lot of like emotional and psychological and social kind of changes that accompany it as well. So obviously like pubertal development fits in really well as a biosocial kind of feature that people talk about. There's a lot of work that's done on like mental health, which is biosocial. And even, I mean, some people get really out there and talk about like nutrition, like relationships between childhood and prenatal nutrition and crime, which obviously also have a lot of connections to like disadvantage and like spatial patterns. So there's really just such a large gambit of things that fall under the biosocial umbrella. Head injuries, I've heard it described in conversations that I've had with Joe Schwartz at Florida State as kind of the gateway to biosocial because head injury does fit so well as like this perfect example of what a biosocial risk factor kind of is and can be. Okay. So speaking of head injuries, I think when we say head injury, most people might think of something like the real prevalent one right now is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I think I just crushed that. Sure. 
I know it better as CTE. <laughs> and I, and think most I threw people... the whole term in there for him, even though I was like, I'm glad I don't have to say that. <laughs> and I think most people have heard of CTEs because of a lot of what's been happening with the NFL and you know, like football players, head injuries. But I think a lot of when you say head injury, a lot of people would think of something like CTE, something that's pretty serious in nature. But does it all have to be like that serious or is that kind of like on the high end of the spectrum? Like is just kind of maybe bumping your head against the door, like enough to be considered a head injury that we might consider worth studying. So can you tell us more about like when we say head injury, what exactly is it that we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So CTE is definitely on the very severe end of the spectrum. CTE really only occurs after you've had like multiple repeated head injuries over a long period of time. The average person that gets like a concussion when they're 12 is not going to develop CTE. Not going to happen. For the most part, when like we're talking about head injuries, we're talking about what's called a closed head injury, right? So like the bones of the skull are not broken. And so the damage that actually is occurring occurs when brain tissue basically hits the inside of your skull. And so that's what happens when people get concussions, right? So a mild concussion from a kid playing high school football, that's a head injury. That's what we're talking about. When people have whiplash from car accidents, one of the problems is that their head goes forward and then back so their brain is hitting the front and then the back of their skull, and that's a head injury. And so these are kind of the very run-of-the-mill head injuries that I think are really important to study because they're what the vast majority of people get, right? We're not talking about super severe head injuries where someone's like unconscious for you know three hours we're usually talking about closed head injuries where someone is like maybe a little dizzy <laughs> for a little <laughs> bit, maybe sees a couple of spots. And so a lot of those do happen in childhood and adolescence for a variety of reasons, but they can range in severity. Generally, that severity is categorized based on like if or how long a person is like dizzy, confused or unconscious for afterwards. But the vast majority of head injuries that people have are what's called mild head injuries, which means they're unconscious for less than 30 minutes. So maybe not at all. And they're usually just a bit dizzy and confused afterwards. So TBI or traumatic brain injuries fit into this. Like, is it synonymous with what we're talking about now? Or is it like a little bit different? Yeah. So I tend to use the phrase head injury over traumatic brain injury, especially in this paper, since I don't necessarily always have like a clinical kind of categorization for it. Traumatic brain injury tends to be used much more so when head injuries are like actively medically classified in their severity. But generally when I'm talking about like mild head injuries or mild concussions, those would also be called mild traumatic brain injuries. So you kind of started to hint that at this actually, but how do we actually go about studying head injuries? Is it enough just to have someone kind of self-report that like, yeah, one time when I was 12, I was blacked out for 30 seconds, or does it require more than that up to a medical exam? Yeah. So I think that really depends on what your research question is and the level of analysis you're interested in. And maybe that's a cop-out answer. I don't know. <laughs> 
But for larger, like general population studies, maybe self-report is enough, right? If you're just kind of interested in how head injury is associated with maybe larger behavioral change, like my study, self-report seems to be fine. There's a lot of work in the clinical area looking at head injuries that is really interested in like specific tissue damage and network region changes in kind of like neural communication after a head injury. And for those, you're going to want pretty detailed medical examinations, imaging of brains before and after head injuries. So you can get really, really detailed if that's where you want to be. But I also think that for kind of more broad questions or ones that are associated with maybe like less minutiae of behavioral change, self-report is probably going to be good enough for a lot of what we're interested in. Okay. So if you're doing self-report, are there certain questions that need to be asked for people? I'm just interested as far as people who are wanting to do work in this, like, are there specific things that people should be asking? In like survey questions? Yeah. Yeah. So in the survey I use, it's a very basic question asked to parents. And it's basically just like, has your kid been injured since the last time we talked to you? And if so, how were they injured? And it's pretty straightforward for a lot of these, right? Like if you can report or have your respondents say that they've been hit on the head and lost consciousness, that's a pretty good indication of a head injury. Mm -hmm. Like that'll do it. (laughs) So it can be very simple and very straightforward. I think it's definitely interesting to get sometimes more detailed questions about maybe like how it happened. If it was like sports related in a car accident, there are some considerations about like maybe, especially if a youth receives a head injury, if it was potentially like due to victimization, those can be harder to kind of gauge or get from self-report sometimes just because of the nature of like the context of the head injury. But for the most part, it seems like people are relatively willing to tell you that they had a concussion when they were 11. Okay. I mean, it certainly happens whenever anyone asks what I study. When I was working on this project for a while, I would tell people that I was looking at childhood head injury. And I swear almost everyone I told this to would immediately go, oh, I had like three concussions when I was a kid. (laughs) Tell you their whole life story about their head injuries. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're criminologists, right? So what is kind of the overview of the relationship between a head injury and how it impacts your criminal behavior or delinquent behavior? Yeah. So at this point, I like to think it's pretty well known that the brain's responsible for behavior and that the front of the brain is where most of the work is done that's associated with like our executive functioning. So our planning, our reasoning, it does a lot of kind of controlling some of the other parts of our brain that are important. And that just so happens to also be the part of the brain that gets damaged pretty easily in things like concussions. (laughs) And so when those tissues are damaged, we expect their ability to function to be just at least a little bit disrupted. And for that reason, 
we tend to see just about anything from changes in like emotion regulation and reactivity, the changes in planning and reasoning skills, changes in impulsivity. And of course, a lot of those are also related to behavior and to criminal behavior. So if we see after a head injury, increased like emotional outbursts of aggression, you know, that might be related more so to like violent behavior or changes to impulsivity is very much so linked to criminal behavior. So it's pretty like nuanced and there are a lot of different ways that head injury could kind of work through different kind of neural patterns and different kind of executive functions to be related to crime. But overall, it tends to be just that head injuries damage our brain's ability to function a little bit. And that can sometimes lead to more criminal behavior. Okay, so kind of building off of that. So we know that just because someone's surrounded or exhibits a a risk factor doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to commit crime, right? So just because someone may have what we consider low self-control doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to commit crime or just because they live in a disadvantaged neighborhood doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to engage in crime, right? But it elevates the risk, right? So we talk about like these correlations where they might be more likely to. How strong is the correlation between head injuries and crime? Like, is that a robust correlation or is that something that we're still trying to figure out? We're still trying to figure that out. So it seems like it works in a lot of, or in the way that a lot of the other things you mentioned do, and that like it increases the likelihood that, you know, you might be criminal or you might engage in delinquency, but it's not, you know, a firm sentence. There's also a pretty big gap between like clinical and criminological work. And so sometimes the clinical work almost exaggerates some of like, the after effects or like the impacts of traumatic head injuries or brain injuries because they're looking at such severe cases. And so in reality, the vast majority of people who get head injuries don't go on to commit serious crimes. And in fact, we might not really notice a big change in behavior, but there is a very large prevalence of offenders with head injuries, right? Far beyond the prevalence of the general population. So we definitely know there's something going on there. We're just not quite sure exactly how strong like causal link is, if you will. Yeah. It's like yeah. that idea of not all people with head injuries commit crime, but all slash most people with, <laughs> who commit crime have head injuries. <laughs> Absolutely. The prevalence rates in offender populations are completely bonkers. Like you get up there to like 70%. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's pretty insane. high. <laughs> and the general yeah. population prevalence hovers somewhere around like 10%-ish. Okay. 10 yeah. to 20, depending on who you ask. That's a drastic so, difference. It's yeah. absolutely drastic. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that seems like a good time for us to dive into your paper. So this paper was authored by our guest, Jessica. It's called Childhood Head Injury as an Acquired Neuropsychological Risk Factor for Adolescent Delinquency. It was published in the Journal of Research in Crime and Delinquency this year. 
2022 for those who aren't listening in this year, I suppose, (laughs) to give kind of a rundown, a quick summary of this paper. The purpose was to explore how head injuries in childhood impact the onset of delinquency in adolescence as an acquired neuropsychological deficit. Jessica draws on the UK Millennium Cohort Study, which has just over 13,000 people in it, to explore head injury, other early life risk factors, and delinquency in adolescence. Is that a decent summary of your paper? I definitely think so, yeah. Okay. All right. So our first question then for you, which we ask everyone, is what was the motivation behind this paper or what were some of the gaps that this paper was trying to fill? Yeah. Well, the primary motivation was that I needed to write a master's thesis. (laughs) (laughs) The solid motivation. Yeah. You know, it it really drove a lot of the work I did here. Yeah. (laughs) No, but this paper really did stem from my background in neuroscience because it was kind of just this perfect melding of being able to bring kind of what I had learned in my undergrad to what I wanted to do in criminology. And it was just a very kind of like happy coincidence that my advisor, Dr. Jeremy Staff, had this data set that asked a question about head injury all throughout childhood. It was kind of just a perfect storm of things falling into place, honestly. Looking at some of the research in criminology, I was really surprised by how much like the clinical insight was missing and then vice versa. You know, I would read more clinical studies of head injury and I was like so confused by why, you know, these insights from criminology weren't being mentioned. And so some of the motivation that I kind of, you know, gained along the way was to try and merge some of these fields a little bit to try and take insights and recommendations from clinical literature and criminological literature and mush them together. <laughs> Additionally, like so much of the work in criminology uses samples of offender populations, mm-hmm. which once again is great because there's such a large prevalence of head injury among offender populations. But I was really curious about this head injury crime connection before people reached adulthood or had contact with the criminal justice system. And at the time, there weren't really many other studies looking at like childhood and adolescent head injuries. There just wasn't a great sample for it. And so this paper, I think, really serves to kind of address that gap and hopefully will spur some more research in that area as well. Okay, so during setup of this paper, you talk about neuropsychological deficits. And I mentioned this in So earlier in our discussion, but can you walk us through what exactly a neuropsychological deficit is? Absolutely. So this phrasing actually comes from Joe Schwartz at Florida State, who also does some great research on head injury. An acquired neuropsychological deficit essentially refers to like any like psychological or neurological dysfunction that is acquired through the course of one's life instead of say like one they're born with, right? So those deficits or changes in functioning occur largely because of the environment. So like something happens to an individual and it changes their behavior going forward, largely on like this neuropsychological level. And so a head injury is really a great example of this because it's not something people are born with. It's something that happens to them as a function of their environment and it can change their behavior, it can change how they perceive the world and how they function moving forward. Okay. 
I really like this idea of kind of interdisciplinary work and pulling from multiple fields to bridge them together. I'm actually trying to do that in my dissertation, so we'll see how that goes. But you just mentioned this as well, this clinical camp versus the criminological camp and how head injuries kind of fall in the middle of these. And so how do these two disciplines treat the topic of head injury and do they ever converge or is that all on your shoulders right now? (laughs) So they've tended to treat head injuries pretty differently, but there's been more convergence lately. It's not just me. It's happening. It's (laughs) happening in the clinical world. It's happening from other criminologists. So there's a small force of us. We're bringing it all together. But for one, the samples that are used in these two fields just tend to be entirely different right? Clinical studies of head injuries usually have smaller samples and they're usually the people that come in to get treated for head injuries. And so they tend to be more severe. And then when those clinical studies are kind of occurring, they tend to be pretty heavily focused on using clinical guidelines and assessments to gauge like severity, behavioral outcomes, like symptoms, get very, very like nitpicky at this point. On the other hand, like criminologists tend to use like larger scale surveys, very few of which are explicitly focused on an individual's experience of head injury. So a lot of our information about like severity, treatment, the behavioral after effects, that can all be pretty limited. (laughs) So there's definitely like just very different scales of information that we're working with. And that changes very much so like how we talk about the head injuries and also what we can say about them. And so that is probably the major difference between the two, but there is a lot of work that's like starting to converge them. Mine is just one of them. And it's very exciting to see kind of clinical researchers step into the world of like, what behavioral things do people do after their head injuries besides just like be dizzy. (laughs) criminologists kind of going into like, well, what if we do gauge severity? What does that change? So it is happening, which is very exciting. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Must be nice to have some reinforcements. Absolutely. (laughs) And I mean, these admittedly are also scholars that come before me. (laughs) Absolutely. And probably some of them that have absolutely no idea who I am, which just how it goes. But they will. They will. Yeah. 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 You know, that's why you're here. We're getting you out there. Exactly. Not like we're like super famous yet, but we're getting there. No. Yeah, you'll get there too. All right. So, speaking theoretically, how do head injuries fall under this idea of the developmental and life course criminology lens? So, What we're curious is what are the mechanisms between obtaining a head injury and then the onset of criminal or delinquent behavior? Yeah. So thinking about like mechanisms really goes into kind of all of the different ways that head injuries can kind of change how your brain functions. So probably one of the biggest ones and the easiest, I think, to use as an example is impulsivity. Right. And especially when thinking about adolescence and childhood, we already know that there's so much research on, you know, how kids and adolescents are impulsive and how that changes, you know, as they make their way through adolescence and into adulthood. And essentially the idea is that if you like you throw a head injury in there, 
maybe that's going to throw off the development, right? Maybe that developmental trajectory of becoming less impulsive is just going to go completely awry. And instead, adolescents might stay impulsive or they might become more impulsive, which then could lead to increases in criminal or delinquent behavior. So I think having head injury as a focus in like this very rocky developmental time where a lot of things are already changing kind of as far as the brain goes is really interesting. It also gets a little bit convoluted, not going to lie, but it is something that could very much so affect these like developmental trajectories that we see and that are a lot of interest to criminologists. Yeah. It seems like a lot going on at the same time developmentally. And so disentangling them, I'm sure is a challenge. Yes. I think that's one of the features of biosocial criminology is that it's unnecessarily convoluted at times. Yeah. (laughs) So, and, you know, we're going to get to your results in a few minutes, but one of the things that you talk about in this paper is head injuries interacting with other early life risk factors. Can you give us some examples of potential early life risk factors that may predict or contribute to head injury? Absolutely. So there are tons. In fact, one of the difficulties of this paper was that so many of the early life risk factors for head injury are also the same early life risk factors for delinquency and criminal behavior, right? So things that are related very heavily to like your childhood environment, like prenatal alcohol, nicotine, lead exposure, parental attachment, childhood victimization, like your self-control when you're little, both of those things or all of those things predict both head injury and delinquency. So once again, another convoluted relationship to try and parse apart there. But one of the interesting things is just that those risk factors could lead to head injury, which then might separately, you know, increase the risk above and beyond those risk factors by themselves. But yeah, it definitely does get a little bit convoluted because there's so much overlap in risk factors. (laughs) Yeah. All right. So we're about to jump into your results, but just you mentioned the prevalence of head injury kind of in offender populations, the prevalence in the general population. And so as far as your data goes using this millennium cohort study, how common was head injury in this sample? Yeah. So head injuries in my sample was actually a little bit more common than I thought they would be. So just for reference, the sample is about like 13,000 youth in the UK that were born around the year 2000. And so I used the head injuries that they had obtained between ages three and 11 for my sample. And it actually was relatively high for a general population. Mm -hmm. The head injury prevalence was around like 27%. So definitely on the higher end of what we would expect to see. And to be fair, I think some of that is just because they are adolescents and that's one like childhood and adolescence is one of the like periods of greatest risk for head injuries. Like I think one of the greatest periods for prevalence of head injuries is like actually age zero to four, which is a horrifying age group for there to be such high prevalence of head injuries. So Jose can tell you something about that. I'm sure with his kid. (laughs) Oh yeah. He just turned 21 months 
and a few months ago he like climbed out of his crib and fell and i'm like oh i don't know what's gonna come out of this well hopefully not some delinquency but (laughs) hopefully (laughs) but yeah so a little bit on the high side for prevalence rates but not anything too concerning yeah okay let's get to the moment that everyone's been waiting for and talk about your results. So you were first interested in whether certain early life risk factors could predict whether a child would experience a head injury or an orthopedic injury. So let's start there first. What's an orthopedic injury? Yeah. So this is one of the things that actually comes from clinical literature. This is a recommendation from a lot of clinical studies of head injury. And that is to use people with orthopedic injuries, which is basically just any other bodily injury, right? So like a broken bone, it's an orthopedic injury. But to use those people as a control group for individuals with head injuries rather than uninjured individuals. And the reasoning for this is just something that we've already kind of touched on. And that's that there are so many early life risk factors that predict just getting injured as a kid. And so there are likely, and my results largely support this, like pretty big differences in some of these early life risk factors between kids that have head injuries and kids that are just completely uninjured. And so that comparison group would kind of artificially inflate some of the results. But using the orthopedic injury group is supposed to kind of control for some of those just inherently and should kind of temper the results to be a little bit more realistic and to account for a lot of those early life risk factors that might be unmeasured that just lead kids to do risky things and get injured, whether it's, you know, a bonk on the head or a broken bone. Great. Yeah. I think when I first read orthopedic injury, it kind of threw me a little bit because I've only ever really heard of like orthopedic insoles for like people's <laughs> shoes. So I was so at first I was not the little, same thing. <laughs> slightly different. <laughs> yeah. So I so, said, you know, for the other Jose's in the world, you know, I hope that's a little clarification. Yeah. Okay. So can you tell us so you know what you were expecting to find and then what you actually found for early risk factors predicting injury status? Yeah, so I was really hoping that I would kind of be able to support this use of an orthopedic injury group. I was really hoping to find that there were going to be so many risk factors that predicted like head injury and orthopedic injury that just vastly differed for the kids that remained uninjured throughout childhood. And to some extent, I definitely did, right? So there are several risk factors like prenatal nicotine exposure, prenatal alcohol exposure, low self-control, conduct problems when you're young that increase the likelihood that an individual will sustain a head injury compared to like remaining uninjured, right? So we do see that there are differences between the kids that go on to get head injuries and the kids that stay uninjured. And similarly, and really great for what I was hoping to accomplish here, there are much fewer risk factors that distinguish those who get head injuries from those who get kind of these orthopedic or other bodily injuries. I think the big ones are like gender conduct problems and kind of neurological deficits present at birth. And so there were much fewer risk factors that 
would distinguish these individuals and the ones that did obviously were controlled for in all of these models. So it really indicated to me that this was going to work as a pretty solid like control group for my head injury individuals. And also just that like head injuries are not randomly distributed, Mm -hmm. right? Like there are differences for the kids who get head injuries than for the ones who don't. That was another kind of big takeaway from this, even if it was kind of only a step that I had to take to get to the next point. All right. So on this next point, you examined whether childhood head injury was a significant predictor of the onset as well as kind of the type or typology of adolescent delinquency while also controlling for some of these injury related factors. And that could kind of confuse this relationship. What did you end up finding regarding injury status predicting delinquency? Yeah, so generally, I find that childhood head injuries associated with delinquency in adolescence. That's the big takeaway here. Specifically, having these childhood head injuries increases the odds of starting delinquency early on in adolescence, so at age 11, which is pretty early to start being delinquent, mm-hmm. even when compared to those kids that have orthopedic injuries so that share a lot of the same risk factors with them. And similarly, it's associated with odds of like being delinquent at age 14, as well as kind of persisting in your delinquency from age 11 to 14, right? So a lot of these kids that start at 11 don't stop. And the like having a head injury makes it much more likely that they're going to continue their delinquent behavior Mm -hmm. over time, which in future work and once kind of more waves of this data set are released, I really hope to extend that to like trajectories and see how head injuries are related to like trajectories of delinquent behavior. It's a little too early on for that. Kids are too young. I can't artificially age them up, but (laughs) we'll get there eventually. And then the last thing was that the kind of having a childhood head injury was related to just being engaged in more delinquent behavior at age 14. Mm -hmm. And this is all compared to those orthopedic injury kids that have very similar risk factors. So it did appear from these results that head injuries were having kind of a difference in predicting Mm -hmm. these kids' future delinquent behaviors. And that's pretty much the big takeaway. They really just point to head injuries like a predictor and potential exacerbator, I guess, of delinquent Mm -hmm. behavior. Cool. What you were hoping to find, right? Exactly. It worked out so well. (laughs) We're theorizing to find, I guess, maybe hoping is not the right word, but. Right. It's one of those horrible things where it's like, man, I really hope these kids become delinquent after they have head injuries. And you're like, I like also hope they're doing okay. They're all right. As a good person, I hope the best for you, but. But as a researcher, I hope you're doing crime. Yeah. Like, I really need this master's degree. So. Okay, so one of the other things that you did in this study was there were some comparisons between racial ethnic groups as well as male and females. Did you see any differences between these groups and head injury and delinquency? Not really. (laughs) So there's definitely some differences in racial or ethnic group as a predictor of injury status. Just that there were some like racial and ethnic groups that had like much lower odds of having head injuries. And I speculate that that might be due to like parental supervision, for instance. But as far as like their relationship to delinquency and head injury, I don't really think there was anything 
you know, super significant happening. The differences between males and females weren't really significant. So it seemed to be a pretty general trend. And that's something that makes a lot of sense because head injuries shouldn't necessarily change all that much between different racial and ethnic groups and different genders on kind of a biological level. Right. Okay. All right. So we also always like to ask about implications of your results. So given to kind of recap what you said, head injury was important for early and adolescent onset delinquency, as well as kind of this idea of prolonged delinquent behaviors between childhood and adolescence. What are the implications of these results? Kind of thinking about research and theory, but also policy and practice. Yeah. So the implications for policy and practice, I like to think are pretty straightforward, right? The preventions of head injuries is really important for a number of reasons, you know, not just for delinquency, but for the whole host of kind of different behavioral outcomes that especially clinical literature likes to look at after head injuries. And so it sounds like silly every time I say it, but really the findings just confirm like head injuries aren't good. (laughs) We should try to like not let kids have them or put them in situations where they're going to have them. But it's, you know, it's definitely really important, I think. And then from kind of a clinical lens, taking this a a different direction, like the current treatments that we have for head injury are pretty limited. Like we don't really have a great way to mitigate head injuries. And a lot of people don't even pursue treatment for concussions. And so we kind of are leaving like this injury essentially largely untreated. And so from a clinical standpoint, I think kind of like the mitigation of damage from head injury and treatment is really important. Obviously that's not something I'm supposed to do, but very keen to keep an eye out on some of the clinical literature and see what happens in that area. And then as far as future research and theory goes, I really think my study only scratches the surface on the relationship between head injury and delinquency right? There are so many possible mechanisms to explore that could be potentially underscoring this relationship. There's also possible like moderators and like the context of injury, mm-hmm. right? So like how an injury occurs, is it a traumatic injury? Like is the actual context in which it occurs traumatic and how does that change things? Or even the timing of the injury, right? Injuries that occur early in childhood might be different than injuries that occur later in childhood. So there's so much more, I think, to really explore here. And I'm very excited for myself and for other people to kind of jump on board and work on it. I think it'll definitely take some time, but there's, yeah, yeah, there's so much left, but it really, I think adds kind of just like the wealth that biosocial criminology can really offer to the field and kind of the additional, like, nuance and information it can bring to like some of our traditional theories, like life course and development theories. So really excited for the future. (laughs) Yeah. And I love how like perfectly situated you are to be exploring this because sometimes it seems like some people involved in biosocial crim just don't really have a lot of the background training in the biological literature. So it's really cool seeing someone who comes from that field start to apply it, who knows, you know, this stuff from a research standpoint. So I'm excited for you too. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. something I've made like a concerted effort to do, like take classes yeah. outside the department, have yeah. advisors that are in 
human development. It's definitely an effort. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure this is not what you meant, but this is what I heard. Like I'm about to go on Amazon and just buy like one of these like foam padded <laughs> helmets for my kid. Oh my God. And, like, like you're not leaving the house without this on because <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that can do some other kinds of harms to your kid. I don't know. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, the social harms from that one, yeah, exactly. might be a bit worse. Yeah, and no, I'm pretty sure that they're not recommended. <laughs> like, but yeah, it's just it's just funny, just make because like as a parent, like you don't want your kid to you know take a head injury, but and uh, you know, I've been I'm guilty of this where before I had my kid what are those parents doing? Like, you should always be watching your kid. Like, don't be so irresponsible. But now that I'm a parent, like, it can happen so quickly. Like, you just get distracted for a split second. You know, sometimes, like, my dogs will be doing something that they're not supposed to be doing. And, like, I turn to tell them to knock it off. And next thing I know, my kid's about to jump off the dining table. <laughs> so, they're wild little creatures. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, yeah, I was just, Kidding, don't put a helmet on your kid unless the research backs it up. I don't know. But or the doctor tells you to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything we didn't touch on that you think might be worth discussing? I don't think so. I think we pretty much covered the whole gambit here. I mean, once again, I'd just love to thank you guys for this opportunity to be a guest and talk about my work on your podcast. And really excited to share it with the world. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for coming on and being a guest on here. I know it could be kind of intimidating, especially as a student. I don't know. You seem very chill and cool talking to people, (laughs) though. So I'm jealous if that is the case. But is there anything else that you want to plug? Anything that you're working on or if you're going to be on the job market soon or anything like that? Sure. I mean, I am in the dissertation phase of my past. I will be, I guess, selectively maybe on the job market this fall. We'll see. But I mean, people can find me on Twitter if they want. I don't know my handle off the top of my head. That's probably be a good thing to know. That's uh, fine. We'll put it in the description. <laughs> yeah, we will. Jay Mongilio. That makes sense. Okay. Yep. But yeah, people are more than welcome to find me there to reach out. I'm happy to talk about really anything that has to do with adolescent decision making. I'm taking some weird twists and turns throughout the dissertation stuff. So we're yep. getting into some crazy interdisciplinary work. <laughs> so, well, that's awesome. Yeah. Sounds, yeah, sounds really It'll cool. It'll be convoluted. That's the key word. all right well thank you again so much and it was great meeting you hopefully we can get together at asc if you go to asc or something like that absolutely all right right. we'll see you there see you thank you hey thanks for listening don't forget to leave us a review on apple Podcasts or itunes or let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website thecriminologyacademy.com You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at The Crim Academy. That's T-H-E-C-R-I-M-A-C-A-D-E-M-Y. Or email us at thecrimacademy at gmail.com. See you next time. See you next time.